Our scripture reading this morning on this first Sunday of Advent is from Luke chapter 15, verses 16, or verses 11 through 16. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that, I, that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Well, we begin a new series this morning that will lead us through the Christmas season. So today and for the next four Sundays, we will look, uh, interestingly enough, at one passage of Scripture all five Sundays. And it is the story that has been most often called uh, the story of the prodigal son. And it is fitting that we look at him during this uh, Christmas season. Our uh, sermon series is titled Home Alone, which I I happen to think is the best Christmas movie of all time. That's just my personal bias. We watch it multiple times in my house at Christmas time. Really like the movie Home Alone. We find Jesus telling a story. As a matter of fact, he tells three parables back to back. And I want to share with you a couple of uh, insights that will perhaps help us to understand why he did it. Uh, One is there is a difference between the way we do things, uh, uh, the way we communicate in the West, meaning the Western Hemisphere, and the way they communicate in the East or the Eastern Hemisphere. Here, if we want to uh, try to get uh, something across, we make a point and then illustrate it. Uh, We start with the... uh, the uh, objective and go to the subjective, or we start with the uh, real and go to the abstract. But Eastern uh, communicators and thought and writers uh, most often uh, start with a story and then say, this is the point. So they make the point with the story rather than uh, telling the, uh, uh, making the point and then telling the story. And so Jesus is trying to make a point. And to do so, he tells uh, three stories back to back. One is the parable of the lost coin. Uh, Another is the parable of the lost sheep. And then the third is the parable of the lost boy, most people call it. Uh, Why would he tell the story? Well, Luke 15 verses 1 and 2 give us the insight into that. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. I love that. The tax collectors were the traitors of the day. They uh, collected taxes for Rome on behalf of uh, Rome from the Jews, their own people. Tax collectors aren't viewed favorably today, but they certainly weren't viewed favorably. In Jesus' day, they were uh, cheaters. They skimmed money off the top. They were turncoats. No one wanted to hang out with the tax collector. And here we discover in verse 1 of chapter 15, Luke tells us that the tax collectors and sinners, 
who are sinners? Well, they're just that. They're sinners. All right? They, um, it's a broad category of people that would, uh, uh, would encompass multiple kinds of things. What is interesting is that in the prior chapter in Luke 14, Jesus had said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And guess who had ears to hear? Tax collectors and sinners. Uh, the most unlikely candidates to be in uh, Jesus' uh, audience were these tax collectors, and these uh, sinners, these misfits. They were gathering to hear him, and some people didn't like it. In Jesus' day, they were called scribes and Pharisees. Today, they're called bloggers. Um, uh, so what did they do? They wrote about it. They talked about it. They they, uh, verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. He receives sinners and he eats with them. There are two things uh, that are meant by the way they described it. To receive means to accept. He accepted them. He embraced them. He drew them in, uh, these sinners. And uh, to eat with someone was also a sign of acceptance. To have them sit and recline at a very low table on the floor is how the tables worked in those days. To have someone sit and recline with you and eat with them on the floor was to, to say, I accept you. And that then causes us to ask the question, did Jesus accept them, uh, or did he accept their sin? And the answer is he accepted them without accepting their sin. He embraced them without embracing their sin. He, we will discover that he uh, really confronts their sin in this third story. And so they were hanging out with Jesus. I want to say something to you this morning. If in your life you don't spend, uh, if in your life you, you never hear somebody or hear of somebody who questions who you hang out with, most likely uh, you don't have enough sinners around you. Uh, most likely you've wholly huddled and you now only have all the good people. If there are never any question in your association and people go, well, why is he with her? You most likely, uh, or he with him or she with her, you most likely uh, haven't spread the net far wide enough. Uh, I, I know that... Uh, Somebody came up to me this morning, two people did, in the early service, before the early service, and said, do you realize who was here last week? And I said, no. And they told me, and when they told me, I didn't know the person, but they said, never in my life did I think they would walk in the doors of a church. And guess what? That's exactly who we want to come here. Amen? Amen. This church exists for those people. The church exists for those people. At the end of the service uh, this morning, at the end of the 9.30 service, this kid comes up to me. He's got a beaming smile across his face, and I recall him from years ago when I had this job. Adrian does it now, but I was chaplain for the high school football team, and I'd just go meet with the team before games and share a little devotional pray with them, and he was a player on the team. 
He came to church occasionally here during that time, not much. He clearly did not live for the Lord. And when he graduated high school, he clearly continued not to live for the Lord. It was clear. But while I was preaching, he was sitting on the second row from the back in the middle section. His face was beaming. He was completely locked in and glued to me. And so he came up here and he said, I don't know if you remember me or not, but four months ago on a Wednesday night in a church, God got a hold of me and I knelt at the altar and gave my life to Jesus Christ. He said, I got saved that night and my life has not been the same since and I couldn't leave this place without coming and telling you. I said, man, I'm so happy. He said, can I hug your neck? I said, sure. And so he hugs my neck and then he talks some more and I said, give me some contact information. And he says, I looked in your bulletin and I see you say, I see where you need some help here. What's this champs thing? I said, oh, that's tutoring kids. He said, that's out of my league. I said, oh man, we'll, we'll disciple you and put you to work. And he said, can I hug your neck again? And so he hugged me again. Four times he hugged me standing up here. This Kid who as a high school guy certainly wasn't that kind of kid. He's 23 now. And God has gloriously turned him around. We live for those stories. Amen? Amen. We live to see what God does and works in the lives of people and changes them. And certainly that is what happened to this young man who was up here earlier. And so Jesus looks at these, uh, at these uh, 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 scribes and Pharisees and he begins to tell a story. And in this story, we really discover three stages of how to walk away from God, how to be a rebel son. Uh, it's clear here, uh, a guy had two uh, sons, and the younger of them said to his father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. This didn't happen. It still doesn't happen much. Most people still wait until their death to give their kids the inheritance. But it especially didn't happen in Jesus' day. And for a boy to go and request it was significant. Do you know what this boy was saying? It's not in the passage, but culturally we know that what he was saying was, Dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. Because if you were dead, I could get what's coming to me. But since you aren't, I don't want a relationship with you. I want your stuff. I want my inheritance now. The fact that the father gave it to him is surprising. Culturally, he, he should have uh, beaten him. He should have sent him away. The kid is most likely older uh, in his teens or uh, maybe a young adult, maybe his early 20s. And the father normally, for a son like this, would say, if that's how you're going to be, you get nothing, you're gone. But perhaps to the boy's surprise, the father took all that the boy had coming to him and gave it to him, and the older son too. We often miss that. Both boys, Scripture says, got their inheritance. The father will talk about later on Christmas, the Sunday before Christmas, but he impoverished himself by this act. He took all of his 
what was going to those boys and gave it to them. Interestingly enough, the law says that when a boy, uh, when a father gives an inheritance while a kid is alive, that if the kid sells it, the person who buys it can't use it till the father dies. It's just strict rules on this, but the boy did it. Stage one is alienation. Stage one of rebellion is alienation. For teenagers, I worked with teenagers for years, absolutely love teenagers, uh, still do. And, and for teenagers, it's when they think that their friends know more than their parents. And they look at mom and dad, and they start to create degrees of separation between them and their parents. They alienate themselves. They, they don't listen much. They go their own way and do their own thing. And alienation is this act of saying, uh, Mom, Dad, I think I figured this one out. I get to teach at Montre, and uh, I was in class teaching. This kid sat on the very front row First week, second week, third week, and then he started to move back in class. And he was fully engaged and he became disengaged just this semester. And so Montreal's a Christian school. I have great latitude and as a professor to, to talk to students and share the gospel. And so I pulled him aside probably week five. And I said, I've noticed something. When we began the semester, you were sitting to my right. You were fully engaged. You were answering questions. Now you're on the very back row. You're not engaged. You're not answering questions. What has happened to you? And he dropped his head, and he said, he's a freshman, I have made a wreck of my life, and I wonder, can God fix it? And so we sat there, stood there and we talked and I said, absolutely you can and gave him counsel as to what he needed to do. And every week following, I've checked in and checked up on him every week in class. And God is turning this kid around. But what did he do? It was clear. Alienate himself. Just check out. It is the first stage when somebody is going their own way and doing their own thing to ignore wise counsel, to look at parents and say, no, I don't think you've got this one, to look at godly friends and say, no, I don't want your advice now. That's what the boy did. And alienation then leads to isolation almost every time. Not many days later, that little phrase is significant, and here is the significance of that small phrase not many days later. Uh, commentators say that this would have created quite a buzz in this community. A wealthy landowner, his son says, Dad, I want everything you've got coming to, uh, that I've got coming to me, give it to me. And the whole community would have been in an uproar, plus 
it would have been land. And so when it's land, it's got to be sold if he is going to, in a few days, gather everything and leave then in a few days he's got to sell off quite a bit of land. And so there's some kind of estate sale that has to happen. The signs have to go up and everybody in the community knows this boy is rebelling against his daddy. This boy who has been raised by his father in a loving home is turned against it to the point that he said, give me everything, and he's selling off his dad's land. And most likely the neighbors are absolutely full of pity for this dad. They watch it happen. Family farms work the same way today. If you inherit a family farm and you decide to sell that thing, you could hear it from somebody. I can't believe that kid inherited that and then sold it, someone may say. But what if you got it before your parents died and sold it out from in under them? Well, in the book of Deuteronomy, there's a law about this saying, don't do it, and if you did... The community had this ceremony of sorts that they would do. Uh, They would take kernels of parched corn and take some nuts and put them in a glass jar and bring it to that person's property. And they would break the jar and it was called the cutting off of that person. They said, you're cut off from this community. If, if you'll sell land out from and under your family like that, you're no longer part of this community. It's entirely possible that if it didn't happen literally in the minds of these people, it happened. The boy cut off. Sin isolates, doesn't it? It's interesting how when you take your first drink, you're almost always with somebody or a group of people. But when you're an alcoholic, they're gone. And you are now alone. It's fascinating how that works. You never see that on the commercials, do you? They all are partying and having a blast and just having a great time and... But when that alcoholic has been an alcoholic for 20 years, he's isolated, he's alienated his family, she's alienated her family, and he's isolated himself from all the people who love him. It's amazing the pain that unfolds. Some of you are adult children of alcoholics. You thought you'd be over it by now. You still aren't. Some of you have children who are older and they're going this way and it breaks your heart to see it. He isolated himself. What did he do? He gathered all he had. He sold everything, converted it to cash. The phrase literally means to convert to cash. He converted it to cash and took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, many people assume 
that he sinned. Uh, meaning that it was just partying and that kind of thing. The older brother accused him of that. Jesus never said he did it in the story. The word reckless means he wasted it. He may have done all kinds of, of, of wrong or evil things, but what we do know he did was waste his money. He wasted everything his father had saved for him. He spent it. He was a spendthrift. Most likely, he had a lot of friends at first. Money tends to do that, doesn't it? You got a lot of money in your pocket. You got a lot of people around. And when the money runs out somewhere, somehow the people do too. Uh, But he had a lot of money and he spent it. It feels good initially to be out from under the thumb of authority, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Uh, Remember Kevin in the movie Home Alone? When he woke up, Remember how he felt? Just in case you don't, let me show you. Check it out. <laughs> it's how it feels at first, isn't it? Kevin has a blast. He eats nasty, bad for him food and says, Mom, watch this. And, uh, because sin feels good for a while. Uh, the younger son gathered all he had and he spent all of his money in reckless living. He lived it up. Isolation follows alienation, but isolation is almost always followed by desperation. Almost always. And when he had spent everything, a famine arose in that country. It's interesting that Jesus, who's making up this story, uh, chooses a famine. They would be familiar with that. Historians in Jesus' day record about 20 famines uh, in the 50 or so years before Jesus and the 50 or so years after Jesus. Uh, A lot of famines. But it's uh, interesting because famines, number one, they happen to you. Uh, The boy didn't cause the famine. And uh, uh, what also is interesting is, uh, number two, the, uh, the boy, if he had had something of his money, he would have been able to survive the famine. But he didn't. He had spent it all. And when this famine happened, it it took a while for the famine to happen. He spent it all and he began to be in need. So what do you think the dad wishes the boy would do 
right now. Come home. If you're in need, come home. The dad would say, come home. But if the boy does, there are three places that he will be ashamed. Three people who will be an embarrassment. Uh, He will be an embarrassment to. Number one, his daddy. He doesn't want to face his dad like that. Penniless. You see that uh, ceremony I talked about where they break the jar? The only way they would undo that is if the boy came back or the landowner came back and bought it back. But this boy has nothing to buy it back with. And so he comes and he thinks, my dad would be ashamed. My brother, oh, that older brother, well, he stayed there. He got all he had coming to him and kept working. He didn't go spend it like I did. I can't face him. And then the community, what would they say? There are some of you today, and the very reason you won't surrender your life to God is shame. You think, well, if they only knew what I'd done, if they only knew where I'd been, If Satan can take shame and hold you down, he'll do it for the rest of your life. So what does he do? Devises his own plan. So typical, isn't it? I'll find me a job. He gets a job with a Gentile landowner. He must be wealthy. We know that. Why? Because he could hire somebody to keep his pigs The significance of this for a Jewish person is that that was an unclean animal, and he's taking care of an animal that he himself would not even consider eating if he is a faithful Jewish young man. But that isn't even enough. And he wishes that somehow he could digest those carobs that these pigs eat because at least the pigs feel full and he can't get enough to eat. That's desperation. That's desperation. And, And the scripture says no one gave him anything. Uh, that no one, a couple different ways you could say that in Greek, and this is the most emphatic. No one gave him anything. He was desperate. My dad has said this for years. I've said it here before, and it bears repeating today. Sin will take you farther than you ever intended to go, keep you longer than you intended to stay, and cost you more than you ever intended to pay. And there are some people sitting here right now, and you're dabbling in sin, and it could wreck your marriage. It could wreck your career. And the Holy Spirit today is reminding you, wake up. Stop. You've isolated yourself. 
you're in a desperate spot, it's time to own up to your sin. Here's what's interesting. The scribes and Pharisees at this point, they're on the edge of their seats saying amen. Why? Because Jesus, by this part of the story, is calling out the tax collectors and the sinners. He's describing their life. As a matter of fact, it is striking the parallel between a tax collector who works for the Romans while he is a Jew and a boy who feeds pigs while he's a Jew. It's a striking parallel. And the tax collectors and sinners could be thinking what some of you may be thinking right now. He's out to get me. I thought there was something different about this Jesus, but why is he calling us out like that? Jesus loves sinners but died for their sin. Jesus loves sinners, but dies for sinners' sins, and so hates the sin and calls it out in the sinners themselves so that they can turn from that sin and trust him who died in their place for that sin. Thanksgiving Day, we ended up with a ham and a turkey. We took it to somebody. They didn't need it. And so we said, what are we going to do with it? So Trent and I head out. We got to find something to do with this ham and turkey. Someone had brought some to the church, and they just had to be distributed. So I thought of some place, went there, and they didn't need it, but they said our neighbors do. And I took it over, and sure enough, the neighbors were absolutely thrilled to get that ham. So Trent and I had a turkey left. What were we going to do with it? So we go driving down the road, and we get on Highway 70. We're coming uh, uh, just on the outskirts of Old Fort. And I said, Trent, why don't we pray? And Because I'm convinced God knows who needs this turkey better than we do. So let's pray and ask him to lead us to the person that needs this turkey the most. And he said, okay. So I kept my eyes open, and uh, he closed his, I think, He's not very trusting of my driving, and we prayed. God, you know who needs this turkey, and if you could help us to find that person, we sure would appreciate it. Sure enough, when I, when I finished praying, this place came to my mind, but I didn't say anything. And Trent looked at me, and he said, Dad, we should go, and it was the exact place that came to my mind. And I thought, the Lord is just affirming that he is guiding us in this, and so we head that way. And while we were driving into this kind of little back area, you never know that all these places are in there. Uh, while we're driving into that, I thought of another family in our church who might need it, so I called them. No, uh, they someone had given them one, and and we stopped it near this place. And Trent and I looked at each other, and went no, and we turned around, and we're coming back out of there. When I looked to the left and saw a tiny trailer, and I said, Trent, I think that's it. And he said, Dad, let's pull over. And so we pull over, and uh, I get ready to get out. And he says, I'll let you go. I'll wait here. (laughs) All right, Trent. So I walk to the door, and when I do, this gentleman answers the door. He's African-American, and his eyes are bloodshot. 
I said, uh, my name is Jerry Lewis. He said, you are lying. <laughs> All my life, I never thought I would meet Jerry Lewis. I said, it's true. I am Jerry Lewis. He said, you don't do telethons. And we had to go through all of that. I'm, you know, I've done that. I do that in my sleep. And so, <clears throat> thank you, Mom and Dad. Um, so we uh, have this conversation. He introduces himself, and his name is Kevin. And I said, uh, Kevin, my son and I have a turkey, and uh, we'd love for you to have it. He said, are you serious? I said, Yeah. Would you like it? He said, oh, yes. And his bloodshot eyes just lit up. So I nodded. Trent got out, grabbed the turkey out of the back of the Jeep, and walked up. I said, this is my son, Trent. They introduced themselves to one another. I said, Kevin, could I tell you why we're here? He said, yeah. I said, well... We're headed into Christmas, and it is all about a man named Jesus who became one of you, one of me, so that he could ultimately die on the cross and raise from the dead. And he's the reason that Trent and I are standing here today. We'd love for you to have this turkey, but we'd really love for you to know Jesus. I talked a little bit back and forth. He began to cry. Big tears began to run down his face. Didn't give his life to Christ. One of our church members lives within walking distance. And so I'm reaching out to them tomorrow to say, there's somebody who needs you. I said, Kevin, are you alone? And he said, yeah. He said, I got all kinds of brothers and sisters. They live all around here. Do you know what? Most likely, Kevin did that to himself. Most likely, he alienated them. Most likely, they tried to help him. Most likely, he shoved them away. He isolated himself. And now he lives in his own tiny little space. Alone. Needing Christ. Here's how we're going to end today. Similar to last week. For the past two or three Sundays, folks have come up to me after the service and said, Jerry, I really had given up on whoever it was. I want to ask you a question today. Who's the prodigal in your life? They've embarrassed you. They've embarrassed your family. They've embarrassed your, your company. Who is the prodigal? that you now choose to ignore or that you've written off. Who have you said, I don't think so? 
What part will you play in this story? Some of you are the prodigal who need to come home. Will you be the big brother who isn't thrilled to see the prodigal come home? Or will you be the waiting dad? Let's pray.